Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. A lot of people may think that they can't afford a lawyer, but what happens when you really cannot afford a lawyer? That's where Legal Aid comes in. So I am very delighted today to be joined by two women from Legal Aid New South Wales, Cherie Pittman, who is the Director of Legal Services, and Aideen McGarrigal, who is the Manager of the Client Eligibility Unit. They're going to answer all of my questions like, how can you find out if you're eligible for Legal Aid? Do you have a say in which lawyer you get? And can you get Legal Aid if you have a nice car? So, Cherie and Aideen, I'm so delighted to have you both in the studio. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and time. So, my first question is, what is Legal Aid and why was it set up? So, Cherie, I'll start with you for that one. Lawyers, for a very long time, have always done what's called pro bono cases. It actually dates back, I think, I'm going to say hundreds and hundreds of years where lawyers would give their time to people who could not afford lawyers as part of the justice system and access to justice. So it has been around for a very long time. But in the 1970s, it was actually put into statute. So the Legal Aid Commission Act makes it a requirement of government to have this statutory agency called Legal Aid New South Wales. It funds it to represent those who cannot access justice or afford legal representation. And you mentioned that Pro bono work has obviously been always a part of the law, but it was only in the 1970s that Legal Aid as a a body was set up. Do you know the the reason why why it became this official body, why it was set up? My understanding is that there were different versions of it. So the Commonwealth had its own version, the state had its own version, but I always saw this as the big suite of human rights legislation that came around in the 70s. We had the Aboriginal Land Rights Acts that started. We had the National Parks and Wildlife Acts that started. The Legal Aid Commission Act was part of that suite of that human rights legislation that came through in the 70s. I think that's right. And we pulled from, we had the public solicitor and then we had the Commonwealth sort of legal aid system and then the Law Society as well. So it was actually about bringing those three together, as Sri said, and establishing it under an act. Sheree, I'll throw to you for this one as well, but Aideen, please also jump in if you've got any thoughts. I I suppose in the time that the experience that you've had with legal aid, what sort of perception do you see that, you know, the general community feel of legal aid? Like I, when I think of legal aid, I think of the, the most caring and considerate lawyers, you know, working to assist the people who really need it. But then we had one other comment who, that was more like, oh, it's kind of the cheaper version of yeah. the lawyer. So like, where, <laughs> where, do you, where do you see that perception? Yes, and I'm, I, mean, I get very defensive because legal aid attracts the best and brightest, no doubt. And a lot of our lawyers are specialists in their industry. They can be the best crime family and civil lawyers that we have in those particular areas. We have the largest criminal defence practice in Australia, 770 lawyers. For me, when we're asked what kind of lawyers represent, I'm actually in charge of the quality of our legal representation and work with teams that ensure that there is quality representation. 
but also... You are the quality control lady. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I am. That's a very attractive name. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. I mean, we have quality control, but nonetheless, our lawyers, as I said, are some of the best and brightest. They come, as you say, to do the more caring work. But to be honest with you, I would have said they're actually value-driven practitioners who care about access to justice and equality before the law and are passionately driven by those principles, which are fundamental to the rule of law. So for me, you get the highest quality. It's just a choice that practitioners have made to do that type of work. You'll have the top graduates coming from law schools and practicing legal aid. So it's not like you're getting a lesser version just because it doesn't cost the client anything or much at all. And so maybe there's a perception that because it's free, it's not the same quality, but in fact, it's the opposite. And I think that goes back to this idea of pro bono in that lawyers have always practiced this concept of ensuring access to justice in the way that they can contribute and legal aid is no different. Aideen, actually, I was going to ask you about legal aid lawyers and, and getting a say about what types of cases, but I actually want to go a step back from that, which is I, I think that sometimes there's a public perception that legal aid does criminal work and it's like looks after people in the criminal justice system. But I don't, I don't think that that's true. So can you tell me what types of cases legal aid work on? Yeah, I agree. I think most people, when they think of legal aid, they do think of the criminal justice system and criminal lawyers. We do have criminal lawyers, obviously, as Sheree has said, we're the largest criminal defence practice in Australia. But we also have a very large family law practice. Our family lawyers would practice in what's called the FCFCOA, which is the family circuit, or the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new acronym. Yeah. And so we also work in the care jurisdiction. This is the jurisdiction where children are removed from their parents and um, we will represent both parents and children. So, and obviously then we assign out work as well to private lawyers. They're really highly skilled areas. Our family lawyers are very skilled, as Cherie was saying. It's very competitive getting into legal aid, so they are excellent lawyers. And within that family practice as well, some people will do what we call independent children lawyers. So they'll actually represent children in family law proceedings. And that's a specialist sort of expertise. And then we also have a civil law jurisdiction. So that's very wide. Civil law is very wide, but we have a mental health advocacy team. So they're a specialist team. This is where people are, say, uh, detained under the Mental Health Act. So they're civil mental health proceedings, and that's a lot of expertise goes into that. We also do forensic work. So these are people who are in custody. So we have that expertise too. In civil law, it's very wide expertise. So we have people doing immigration work, refugee work, working with people with disputes with Centrelink. We're across consumer rights. We also have a specialist service. Disaster recovery. Disaster um, recovery, yeah. Service that has been extremely busy yes. in previous years. And we're... I think um, we're highly respected in that space, actually. Yes. Um, we do a lot of work. So it would be around insurance claims and issues around what can happen when you're when there's fires and floods. And we've yes. had, unfortunately quite a few of those mm. in recent years. Mm. And then our criminal practice is obviously quite wide too. So in, in criminal practice, you have indictable, serious indictable matters. So that's where you're in the district court or Supreme Court, but also there's local courts. So people can specialize in the local court matter. Then also in, say, for example, we've got people who work in specialist prisoners' legal matters. So they're 
different types of criminal matters. And then also in the Commonwealth Crime Unit as well. So they're crimes that are under Commonwealth statutes. So they're all slightly different. So we've got a lot of experts. So they get to choose where they want to work. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. So, so someone can sort of have a say in the type of matters that they, they want to work on? Yes, yeah. So it's in the way that if they're working in the criminal practice, they can sort of choose what I like doing local court duty work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to join that specialist unit and then they'll do mainly duty work. So that'll be duty, but also defended hearing. So that's most of the criminal justice system. That's the summary crime where people are in for you know, traffic offences, small drug offences, you know, Unfortunately, a lot of domestic violence offences, so that's probably the busiest jurisdiction for crime. And then other people like trials, it was slightly different, so that's your serious indictment matters. We even have a specialist appeal unit. Wow, that's an incredibly, an incredibly broad remit. I want to then ask, can anybody access legal aid? Well, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I should um, go back to one of your original questions and say most people see legal aid mainly for crime, but they also think it's only for people on Centrelink, but it's not. We actually have a means test. So we have eligibility policies, the means test being our core eligibility policies. And so you can be on an income and earning an income and have assets and still be eligible for legal aid. So the means test is the core test that we use. And then we also have, say, what matters aid is available for. So we'll restrict some matters and we'll, aid is available maybe for most criminal matters. But when we come to the civil jurisdiction, there are some restrictions. And we also merit test quite a few matters. So anything in the civil or family law jurisdiction will be merit tested before we grant aid. And they're applied the same way to everybody. And what does that, that means test look at? Because I'm thinking, you know, does it look at just what is in someone's bank account? Is it if they own a house or could it even come down to looking at what assets that they own and could potentially sell if they needed to, you know, fund a legal case? Yeah, that's that's a really, that's very insightful. Very good. Yeah, we have an income test. So that looking at someone's income, if someone's on full maximum centering, they automatically satisfy our income test. But if you're on an income, you can take housing costs away. You can take, you know, you might have a financially associated person. So that's normally an, a partner that you live with and share expenses with. And you may have dependent children as well. So we take that into account when assessing your income. And then we come up with what we call a net assessable income. At the moment, that's $450. It's quite a complex means test. So we use the Henderson Poverty Line. And at the moment, we sit probably at 111% of the poverty line. So we're slightly above it. But we are aware that cost of living has gone up. So what we've built into our means test is regular reviews. So we will be reviewing our means test next April. But we also have an assets test and that does look at what assets you have. So it looks at your cash in the bank, but it also does look at shares, cryptocurrency, any of those sort of other assets that you might have. And then it also looks at your home. So you can have equity in the home up to 815000 and then you're still eligible for legal aid. But what we do in those circumstances is we take a charge and that will cover the total costs of proceedings. We have a, what we call a lifestyle test as well. So that might be where somebody satisfies the income and asset test, but then they arrive at our office in their brand new Porsche and we might just say, hmm, it That's looks like... That's interesting. Yeah. And that actually leads into my next question, which is 
Would you ever require someone to sell an asset before assisting them? Or i.e., can you say to someone, like, you are seriously failing the lifestyle test here? Like, yes, we, we definitely <laughs> got to take these like designer clothes <laughs> off. Like, you got to like just tone it down a bit. Yeah, we used to have, um, I will tell a little anecdote here. We used to have a family lawyer who used to decide if somebody had a better handbag than she did, <laughs> that they were definitely not eligible for it. I love that benchmark. <laughs> <laughs> so that's went way too much around a handbag. Like. That's right, that's right. But that's not one of our tests, no. Um, but the lifestyle test, yeah, it is, yeah. People do, it has happened where we had someone driving up into one of our offices in a brand new Lamborghini. Ooh. And yeah, yeah. And it was yellow as well. <laughs> <laughs> so not about taste either. But yeah. um, we don't require people to sell assets, although there is the mechanism by which we would ask or seek a charge. Yes, you mentioned yeah. that charge, Aideen, over a house where you wouldn't have to pay any amounts of money for legal fees until you go to sell it or mortgage, which could be 20 years later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only assets would be, say, liquid assets. So if you had shares, we might, depending on how much they were, you might, you know, it might be that we say sell those before you come back to us because we treat that as cash. So, but you are allowed to have a certain amount. So there is allowable amount. So, yeah, yeah. So you can have some cash savings in there if you want to you can have an okay-ish handbag. (laughs) I actually, I want to move on to what kind of assistance legal aid offers. So like say that this is a point where someone has in all seriousness cleared those tests and they are eligible to receive legal aid. Other examples of what kind of assistance that you offer. So does, does legal aid just take cases where you're kind of going from beginning to end are there instances where you might provide some legal advice but no more or is it like you, you sign and you, you're sort of committed to, to seeing a matter through? Yeah. Look, just taking it back a step, people get advice, what we call advice and minor assistant. They're not required to satisfy eligibility criteria for that. So that's free legal advice and minor assistance. We do have a triage system. So we triage people through different, so to different offices, to different expertise. So that's quite a, a new sort of triage system that we've developed, which has been sort of well-recognized in the legal community. So it's some wonderful work our client services people have done. And advice and mine assistance might be helping someone write a letter to an agency or something. And it can often be really helpful at the very beginning where you feel you're going to have a dispute getting that good sound legal advice might put you on a different path, you know, and also you can send people to other government agencies to help you resolve those disputes rather than getting into litigation. So then we also have what we call extended legal assistance. So that's like a sort of, it's no, it's not, you're not a court or tribunal, but you're at, you're giving a little bit more advocacy and that's often to more disadvantaged people will get that service. And that's both in family and in our civil jurisdiction, our civil practice. And then we have an early resolution assistance. Before anyone goes to the family court, they are required to actually attend dispute resolution. So the early resolution is available for people in dispute resolution forums. And at the moment, it's mainly in family law. Everybody mediates their dispute at the beginning and hopefully resolves the dispute. But even if they don't, it sort of can resolve some of the issues in dispute before they go to court and litigate. We have a simplified means test for that as well because it's a low-cost service. So it's um, an easier means test. Then when you're going to court or tribunal, then that's the casework that we do. Some people will go from the advice. If you're a family client, they may go from advice to the early resolution assistance and to the court then. So we take them through that process. I want to I want to run one thing past you and that's, so on 
lawfully explained before we have sort of talked and had episodes about representing yourself in court uh, and also whether or not you should get ChatGPT to represent or do legal work for you. But I'm interested to know that if someone came to legal aid and said, I want to represent myself, like I think I can do it, but like, you know, I didn't go to law school, I'm not a lawyer. Can you help me kind of basically brush me up on a few things and, and coach me a bit and then I'm totally fine to go it alone? Do you get those requests and what do you say to those? Well, first of all, I think if you were eligible for assistance, we would encourage you to seek legal representation because I think I myself, as a lawyer, would never represent myself in court. Like, mm. so, <laughs> Because you're just so invested with the outcome, it's very hard to be impartial and so sometimes court processes may not be aligning with where you want to go and that would be really difficult to get across. And so I think that's a challenging point. But if you weren't eligible and you were unfortunately not able to engage lawyers or it was a small matter, then there's many paths you could engage in. And we have a website, which I can talk about later, that may be able to help you. But we've also got, as Aideen mentioned, the triage system where we actually refer you on to law access. And then that may lead you on to our, what we call SWAT, which is a statewide advisory team. Oh, that's a good acronym, (laughs) SWAT team. And it's a SWAT team (laughs) because I think the person that you describe may well be the person that would benefit from about a 40-minute appointment (laughs) in uh, here's, here's a crunch time on how to represent yourself in yeah. court. And so they would be able to give you some advice. And you may end up being referred to somewhere that could help you because you didn't know that existed. I often think people end up representing themselves because they're not sure of all the avenues that can be supported. And so the triage system, law access, and then if booked in for a SWAT appointment, that would probably lead you on the way. I imagine though you do find yourself representing yourself in the local court for traffic matters and and things like that. They could provide that brief sort of introductory advice and wish you the best of luck. (laughs) I do have to say I love the idea of someone appearing before a magistrate and say, Your Honour, like, I have had a SWAT team (laughs) assist me. (laughs) SWAT team have helped. Are there cases that legal aid don't take on? Yes, it's mainly in the civil jurisdiction. So in most family law matters and care jurisdiction, mental health and in crime, we will take on most matters. The civil jurisdiction is probably the biggest one where we don't provide legal aid. And that would be mainly like obviously in commercial investments or transactions, we won't get involved in those. We don't do personal injury or medical negligence cases either. So that's mainly with private lawyers will do that work and often on a no in no fee basis so that people can access justice through those sort of services that are provided by private lawyers. We also don't do neighbourhood disputes. And neighbourhood disputes are no because it's a it's a matter of like, just sort it out yourselves. It's just a very, it's a, they're always intractable disputes. Yeah. So yeah. They're never really going to be resolved. I don't want to say that, but often they are those very difficult disputes. And we have community justice centres that run dispute resolution for neighbours. We do refer them to their local council because, you know, obviously the dividing fences, trees and all those issues that cause these terrible disputes between neighbours. Oh, yeah, incredibly um, contentious. Yeah. And I mean, it's about resourcing the most needy cases. Yeah. And so, yeah, obviously... Threats of homelessness kind of trump some a dispute of those over names. a yeah. tree in a pool. Yeah. Like yes, like yeah. That. yeah, no, absolutely. What about defamation? No, we don't do defamation cases, but what we may do is it's not completely excluded. So we have like civil law policies where the board have said these are matters that we will do. It's not a type of matter that's explicitly included in our policies, but it's also not excluded. 
So where we wouldn't run an applicant who's making a defamation case because it would get, it's just a very difficult jurisdiction, it's very contentious jurisdiction, it's very expensive. But we might have a client, a very vulnerable client who might be a, a defendant in a defamation case. So that might be something we would look at. But generally, defamation is a very tricky jurisdiction. When considering taking on a case, does the likelihood of a success in a case ever influence that decision if you look at a case and think someone is very determined to push ahead with, say, a not guilty plea when it's a fairly overwhelming case against them or there's sort of there's some reason why you can look at it and applying your own expertise, you can think this is this case has pretty much no chance of success. Does that ever influence a decision to take on a matter? I'll move from the not guilty plea for the moment, but just say most of our cases, so civil and family, we merit test them. So you have a merit test before you even commence proceedings. So we won't take on a civil or family matter if we don't think there's reasonable prospects of success. When you're into the criminal jurisdiction, we only merit test appeals. So we don't have a merit test. We don't have a reasonable prospects of success test at the substantive proceeding stage. So if somebody's charged with a serious indictable matter, the first stage of these proceedings is called early appropriate guilty pleas. And that's a sort of really well worked out system where the DPP and defence solicitors and barristers are all involved in working out what's going to happen. If the person says, no, I'm still not guilty, well, in the end of the day... They have a right to a trial. Well, not a right to a trial, but they can go to trial. Yeah, it's the cornerstone, like the bedrock of it, the legal system. Absolutely. Like and really, in the end of the day, it's up to the prosecution to test the case and prove beyond reasonable doubt. So we do fund them, but we hope that our skills, our lawyers and their forensic skills will persuade people. Because if you plead early, you get benefits for doing that. And so I think that's something our lawyers do explain to our clients really, really well. But ultimately, if they want to go to trial, um, yes. I mean, we have a policy in the local court. It's not part of the eligibility, but you can be refused if there's no possible prospects of success. But really, that policy came in, for example, where you may have people who their defense is that they're sovereign and that the court doesn't have any jurisdiction over them. And so we would not expect our lawyers to put that sort of defence to the court because obviously it disrespects the court and the jurisdiction of the court. So really we will, if someone wants to plead not guilty, we, we do defend them, yes. And you mentioned briefly about having a merit test when it comes to appeals. Can you talk me through that process of with, a, with an appeal and if someone wants to keep contesting that into higher courts, is legal aid with them the whole way on that? Well, that would really depend. So if you have someone who's going through an indictable matter and they're um, they're convicted and they get a sentence and they want to appeal the sentence, say, or they want to appeal the conviction because it's unsafe, we would then go and get merit advice on that and that would go to the Court of Criminal Appeal. So we have expert um, barristers who give us merit advice on that. And as I said earlier, we actually have a specialist appeals unit. So it's really, appeals are not just even about the individual, they're actually about the justice system. 
and just making sure that decisions are made safely. And, you know, if someone is convicted, I mean, that's quite a serious thing. If they're going to spend time in custody, that that conviction is safe. And then the sentence is correct. If it's got merit, we will take it to the Court of Criminal Appeal. In the very rare cases, if we still think there's an issue, and they're all very finer points of the law here that we're talking about, and and we f- still feel there something needs to be knotted out in, in, in sort of around the legal issues for crime, we will take it to the High Court. But the test then, or the merit test, is also making sure that we're using public funds responsibly. So by the time you're at that point in the system, someone can't keep having a, like, mm. I keep telling you I didn't do it. No, no, no. It's like no. you're looking at something that's a really going to kind of the heart of kind of a legal matter that could be setting a precedent and could Absolutely. have sort of serious consequences. Yeah, yeah. And if we deny the the appeal, so deny the aid for the appeal, there's also the opportunity for a client and an or and or an applicant to appeal our decision to grant aid. So that goes to independent legal aid review committees to assess whether our view on denial of that aid for that particular matter is correct. How far can someone appeal? Like how far can they go in that process? So uh, the appeal normally ends at the High Court. So once you've lost at the High Court, that's the end of your avenue appeal. However, there is a provision, they're called Part 7s, and people may be familiar, an example of a Part 7 appeal would be the recent inquiry of Kathleen Phobic, who had been sentenced for, I think, as a life imprisonment for the alleged murder of her children. And she had gone through all her avenues of appeal. Then she she went to what they call a Part 7. So that was an inquiry before a Supreme Court judge. After that inquiry, so it's more an inquisitorial type inquiry. They've got lots of evidence. You have to have new evidence coming in. And this was the case where there was new evidence coming in about her children, I the think. Scientific, the yeah, scientific testing. and evidence. Yeah, yeah, and a sort of recast of evidence in the first trial with the, the diaries and things that's like that. That's like, right. No, a yes. lot more now than people yeah. was 20 years ago. So that's, a, yeah, so that's a good example of a part seven. And on the basis of that inquiry, then Ms. Volbeck was pardoned. And so she's now out of prison. I know that you have both spoken about the sort of consideration of the public expenditure and making sure that that sort of money is being used efficiently, I suppose is the, the word that uh, politicians would would like to use efficiently, but is there is there a sort of an amount or an allocation that is determined before a matter begins? Is there a limit, and is is anything like that considered before a case begins as to sort of what what resources are allocated to it? Um, we have fee scales, and they're all published and they're all approved by the board. So in the family law, we sort of um, fund through the stages of the family law proceedings. So we've allocated a particular, like the hourly rate is set by the board. What can vary can be the preparation in criminal matters and also in family matters. I mean, more and more of the family matters going to hearing, final hearing particularly, are often, there's often quite serious allegations of domestic violence. And so they might be quite complex matters. So we might have to prove more preparations. So if it's needed, we will do that. And in criminal jurisdiction, it's the same. So you may have a criminal matter that has a very large brief and requires a very complex and requires more preparation. But in terms of the, you know, the court decides how, how long the, the matter will be set down for trial or hearing. And so we will fund the whole hearing or the whole trial. And they're all paid at an hourly rate. Council's paid on a daily rate. So that's all sort of set. We can sort of estimate how much things are going to cost, you know, how matters are going to cost, but it's not yeah, set Yeah, once beforehand. you're our client, you're our client. Yeah. 
It's, I know that, and it's something that obviously has been a very popular topic on this show. And I imagine that that reflects uh, the broader community, which is obviously the, the fear of the a cost of a lawyer. And people can sometimes feel when they're embarking on any form of legal action or if they have been charged with a crime, they might be thinking like, I'm, I'm staring down the possibility of a very large legal bill. And I imagine that sometimes that could be tempting for people to think if there's only a way that I could get some help. Do you ever encounter people who are trying to access legal aid dishonestly? I mean, you have spoken about the very robust testing system. So I'm assuming they don't get that far, but do you ever get people attempting to sort of get it when they would not be eligible? Yeah, it's very rare and uncovered pretty quickly through our assessment of an application for legal aid. So under our Legal Aid Commission Act, I mentioned that earlier, we have powers where we can ask for certain material from an applicant. And so pretty quickly, I think we can work out whether someone has a lifestyle that's beyond the evidence that we've been presented with. We have never prosecuted anyone for falsifying records, although we have those powers. So it's a very rare thing, but we have the powers to uncover it. But generally what we do find is that people don't declare everything and then pretty quickly that becomes obvious and we ask the right questions. And once they've given the right tools and the right information, I think it does demystify a lot of the concerns. But I, I will be honest, some matters are, yes, very expensive if they're not legally aided. What can happen is if you're in a sort of very expensive, say, for example, Commonwealth fraud matter, so these are really expensive and often go on for a long time. There's a lot of evidence and even people who are quite well off might struggle to actually pay the fees that are involved in representation for those matters. So what we can do is we can exercise discretion sometimes. So we will, as um, Sheree was saying, take a charge. If they have properties, we'll take a charge and recoup all our costs that we spend. And I think the important thing is that when you get legal aid, you are paying far less than if you're paying privately. But, but you're um, getting the quality. Get, oh, you're getting an <laughs> extraordinary quality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if someone was interested in coming to legal aid for resources or education, what, what can they have access to? We've got a fantastic new website. I would direct people to go to the website first. It's got some very client-centred tools that have just been developed where you have sections where it says my problem is about and it's using a version of AI to sort of use everyday language to describe quite complex legal problems. Another section has got ways to get help that describes assisting people on finding the right pathways. And so I was mentioning that earlier is that sometimes intimidation with the legal system just means you have to get on the right path and get you to the right place that can help you. And so there's sometimes our specialised not-for-profit organisations that might be able to help you and give you more assistance if legal aid is not available. And this website may be able to help you in that direction. It can also give you legal sort of prompts and information. There's guided pathways on fines, for example. We've also got a community legal education unit that um, provide seminars and various learning tools and podcasts, would you believe? Um, and lots of different... Everyone has a podcast these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we have, I think, interesting sort of podcasts or sessions within the community legal education space. For example, how to manage a divorce. What are the, sort of the next steps I have to take? And then, of course, we've mentioned law access and the SWAT team, which is that next stage where you can't resolve anything through researching our website and you might need some further assistance from an actual person. Or web chat, actually. We now have web chat where people can 
chat to us online and we can direct them along the way. I I would definitely say our new website was launched in June this year, um, is really client-centred and and client-focused. So people will find quite a lot of assistance there. Yeah. And we have got some information on fencing disputes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I think we do divorce classes as well, Sheree. Yeah. 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 I love the sound of a divorce class. I know. My husband isn't listening to that. Sounds a little, (laughs) (laughs) might sound a little odd. If someone's first language isn't English, are there interpreter services that can be provided? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We even have on our website as well, a lot of the information is in other languages as well. I think even on our website, if you want to hear, you can hear in the different languages as well. We've interpreter services. So if someone comes in for advice, you have an interpreter service there. Yeah. And our lawyers and other staff within legal aid are multilingual. It's a system where we actually staff notify that they are comfortable using those language skills to assist. So if it's not quite at the interpreter stage where we need it for a formal interview or court yeah. processes, then we may have legal practitioners who speak the relevant language as well. And this is a question that is almost going back to a little bit of what we were discussing at the start, which is about sort of legal aid being this sort of beacon for people who are really, really in need of help. Uh, and also thinking of people who may have quite specific issues of trauma that could relate to sort of cultural or religious or gender or sexual orientation complexities, do Legal Aid have programs that are tailored specifically to people who be who might have that intersectionality or complexity that needs to be looked after in a very unique way? I, I think to answer that, like I'll go big and then go yeah. um, more specific, but Legal Aid has developed over at least the the last five, but probably the last decade, a multidiscipline practice. I say this because I'm a lawyer and I always smile because lawyers are rightly so very protective of their practice and their interaction with their client and the privilege that attaches with that. But we are getting much better at working in multidiscipline teams. And so we now have social workers, Aboriginal field officers, financial counsellors and other allied professional support staff who are able to do a wraparound sort of service so that are guiding a client through those potential trauma pathways, if you like. Like, so in addition to the legal assistance and representation as needed, there is that extra support. And so depending on the nature of your legal issue, it would depend on the support that you get. Because often we find that our clients have complex needs that touch on many different areas of law. And so therefore, those support and ally professionals can support any particular aspect of a client's needs. And I think we've all done trauma-informed services as well. So as an organisation, I think there's a real level of understanding of of these um, needs. So that's actually a really good question and it feeds nicely into the work we've been doing over the past five years, really. The biggest growth area in, in our legal practice has been in this area is in understanding the nature of the complexity of our clients and ensuring that our services meet those needs rather than the other way around. So 
yeah, it's a client-centred approach. Shereen and Aideen, thank you so much. I know I had a lot of questions and it covered a lot of uh, different topics about how people may walk through the door of legal aid. Uh, and you've provided such wonderful information from everything from handbags and self-representation to really serious and complex questions. And really, thank you for the incredible work that Legal Aid does. It really is the sort of lifeblood of so much of accessing justice uh, in the nation. So thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens. And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.